Job chapter 40. Um, The book is about a man called Job, and it deals with the incredibly complex issue of suffering. Uh, The vast majority of the book is uh, a poetic dialogue between Job and others. Um, And what happens? Job is an innocent man. He's a good man. He's a godly man. uh, And he just undergoes some of the most horrendous suffering possible. And all throughout the book, Job is wrestling with this why question. Why has God allowed me to suffer what I have suffered? And he's got three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I was saying the other week, they sound like cool Star Wars names, but don't name your children after them because they are terrible. And they give Job terrible advice, basically accusing him of uh, having done some secret sin which God is punishing. And we, the reader, know that that is not true. And then Job starts to get some answers after uh, 30 chapters of crying out. There begins to be some response to Job. It begins with another friend called Elihu, who I think, I think we're meant to read Elihu quite positively. Um, he responds to Job uh, and starts to address some of the things that Job had misunderstood about God. And then, amazingly, God himself speaks And God speaks to Job and gives him some answers. It's not the answers that Job wanted, but as we'll see, it was the answer that Job needed. And God has um, already challenged Job's um, ignorance in chapters 38 to 39. And now in chapter 40, verse 6, this is God's second speech to this poor, suffering man of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus tree covers him, the willows of the brooks surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? 
Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of a row of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on and immovable. His heart is as hard as stone, hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw, and bronze is rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee, for him sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like potsh herds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired, On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said to me, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job chapter 40. Uh, This is the second last week in Job um, we've got one more week because there's stuff that's just so wonderful, we need to spend more time on it uh, and glean the wisdom uh, that we can see at the very end of the book as well. And we've been saying each week that we need this book. We need the book of Job because the book of Job is designed to give us wisdom to endure through suffering. And there's almost nothing more inevitable in life than suffering. It will happen if it hasn't already Many of you um, have gone or maybe are still going through difficult times. Uh, And in fact, when you look at what Jesus says, it's almost a guarantee for following him. You've got to suffer to follow Christ. And my worry is 
that there may be some of us who are what Jesus would describe as seed that has fallen on the rocky ground. You hear the Word of God, you accept it, but as soon as suffering comes along, you fall away because you didn't have deep roots, because it wasn't real for you, the gospel. And this is why we need Job, because Job is for people who are serious about following Jesus. It's about establishing these deep roots of wisdom so that when we do face trials, we are not destroyed by them, but by God's grace strengthened. This is, uh, this is one of the greatest treasures that God has given us as human beings. This book is just incredible. We need its emotional realism. We need its intellectual credibility. And we need the wise counsel that it offers especially when we go through hard times. And one of the benefits of, that I've had in studying this is that in, and when you preach something, you have to really slow down and read it and study it and soak it in. And I've just found this such an incredible blessing to be spending time in this book. And just encourage you, uh, in light of um, what Andy was preaching on last time we looked at the book of Job, to go home again and to read chapters 38 and 39 and just meditate upon those words because we can't read them too fast. We've got to spend time looking at what God says. And it's just absolutely amazing. Human speech really does no justice to the words that we'll see in this book. So let me just quickly pray um, before we do look at God's Word here. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the wisdom that's contained. Thank you for what we have learned as a church through the book of Job. Father, there are questions that we have in suffering. Father, there are big questions that will come out of this passage tonight. Father, there are questions I have that I do not understand sometimes how you work or why you allow certain things to happen. Father, we often feel like that. But help us to understand who you are tonight. So although we do not know why you do certain things, we can trust you. And we know, as Sam read at the start, that your ways and your thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts. Father, humble us tonight through your word and help us to hold on to you, especially through times of difficulty and suffering and evil, because there is no hope outside of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you see I've got an outline on your service sheet there uh, in which uh, I think sums up really what I want to to say what I think this passage is saying. Uh, the first point there is that God speaks here to Job, and this I think is the summary of the entire speech, of his sovereignty over Satan and death. That's what I think is happening in this final speech. God is speaking to Job about his sovereignty over Satan and death. So let me just show you that by looking at the three sections that I've got there marked out on your service sheet. Firstly, we see an accusation against challenging God's justice. That's what God comes to Job with uh, in verses 7 to 14. He is accusing Job of challenging his justice. It begins this speech in a similar way to the first speech. You've got this whirlwind and then this voice, the voice of God, booms out of the whirlwind. And in, in his first speech, God was trying to get Job to see something fundamental, how little he is 
and how little he knows about the universe. And that's such an essential thing to know in times of suffering. We need to get a perspective on God because when we do, when we've got a right perspective on God, when we've got a right perspective on this universe, it will give us a right perspective on suffering. In chapters 38 to 39, they're just so magnificent, um, and it's such a great description of God's wisdom as the creator. You remember that when Andy was preaching on it? You remember the ostrich? Everyone remembers the bit about the ostrich. If you don't know what that is, listen to it online, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Or read it, and you'll see it there. Um, but he, here's, here's the problem. I think some of us maybe have a bit of an issue with God's speech. If I'm honest, I did the first time I read it. And this is the, the issue We have been reading with this broken man, time and time again, he has been asking the question, why, why, why? And we know why, as the reader, we saw it in chapter 1 and 2. And then when God shows up to speak to Job, God never tells Job why he suffered. And it can seem on the surface to us, almost like God's been quite indifferent to Job's pain. Because God just seems to say, Job, who do you think you are? And that's what it looks like. But here's why I think, and you've got to spend time looking at this, but here's why I think that this is the best possible response to this broken man. And Job thinks that. We see that at the end of this chapter. This will help us with the chapters we're about to look at tonight. Firstly, if God had told Job why he was suffering, it would not have helped him. It would not have helped him. Job needs to get some stuff in his head right about God. He has, on the whole, Job's speeches are good and right, but he has said some stuff about God that is wrong. He views, he kind of views God as really just kind of a bigger version of himself. Most of us do. And that's wrong and that's twisted. Job needed to be humble because even the best of us like him is laden with sinful pride. He needs that right perspective on reality. He needs to not live with a false understanding of God. And that's what God is correcting and trying to get him to see because the question of who God is is infinitely more important than the question of why does God allow certain things to happen? Infinitely more important. When we are humbled before God, it will help us to trust Him and not ourselves in times of difficulty. And that's what Job needs to do. And secondly, this is the second reason why um, it's helpful. If God had told Job why he had suffered, it wouldn't have helped us here today as we read this book. Job would still be proud if he knew. And read, read, we would read this and we think, oh, well, that's great for Job. God has told Job. But God hasn't told me why I suffer. God doesn't only want Job to trust him. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to see the truth that we are not the be-all and end-all Suffering, what it does, one of the dangers in suffering is it makes us incredibly introspective. But he wants us to see that there is something bigger, that there is something greater, there is something more glorious outside of ourselves, and we need to hold on to that. God has not been cruel, and he has not been insensitive in his response. We'll see that next week. He's trying to help Job. 
And that's what he's doing here in this chapter, in these verses. His speech begins with another accusation. This is not the accusation of ignorance. Here, God is accusing Job of challenging his justice. Job has done that as we've read his speeches, hasn't he? Can God really be just? Can a God who causes and allows the innocent to suffer be just and good? What a profound question. What a credibly modern and relevant question that is. You, um, I'm sure some of us have felt that. Do you remember that there was an interview with Stephen Fry that went viral uh, on the internet not too long ago? Um, and he was doing an interview with someone from Ireland. And uh, the presenter asked him, if you were to appear before God, say he was there, and you were to appear before him after you die, what would you say to him? And Stephen Fry replied, if I saw God, I would say to him, bone cancer in children? How dare you? How dare you create a world with such suffering? That's what Stephen Fry said. That's not a very wise statement from one who's very clever. Even more amazing to think that the breath that he breathes with which he curses God is what God has given to him. But you know, there is something in what he says that I think we, we, we kind of, we, we resonate with that. We wonder why. Why, why God? Why create a broken world? Why allow the suffering and evil to, to continue in this world? And that question will become more real to you when it happens to you as it's happened to our friend Job in this book. Job has challenged God's justice, and now God challenges Job. And it's interesting to note, look at verse 8, why God says that Job has challenged him. Verse 8, will you put me in the wrong, Job? Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right. When Job challenges God's justice, it's as if he's saying to God, look, look, you don't know how the world should be run. I do. And when we challenge God's justice, we think we are in the right and God must be in the wrong. Are you you starting to see there's, there's a pride here that God's picking up on? And he says to Job, verses 10 to 14, Job, can you judge the world? You, this small, finite creature, Why don't you clothe yourself with majesty? Why don't you clothe yourself with dignity? Why don't you stand and survey the vast arrogance of mankind? Will you put the world to right? You know, God says, if you can, then I'll admit you're the Savior. And God's not saying, again, he's not being cruel. He's not being insensitive. He's not saying to Job here, look, mate, the, the universe is a hard and complex thing to run. You try having a go at it. Kind of like the, the premise to that, um, that film, Bruce Almighty. I don't know if you've seen that. I wouldn't recommend it. But kind of, that's basically the premise to that film. This guy is complaining to God, and God says, well, here you go. Try running the world, and then he makes a complete mess of it. It's, kind of, it's not really what, what God is saying. But he's getting Job to see that he is getting Job to see that the world is a much more complex thing than we like to realize. We can simplify it so that we make ourselves appear in the right, but we have no idea, no idea. 
And if you go through some horrendous trials or you see some of the most wicked things that happen on earth, it's okay to question God. Haven't we seen that in the book of Job? It's okay to be emotionally honest with, with how you're feeling about these things and to ask that question, why? Um, this is the 20th anniversary of the Dunblane Massacre. I've seen a documentary on it in TV, watching it this week, thinking on these big questions of evil and God's role. That's wicked. That's evil. Why, God? Why would you allow that to happen? I don't know why. We'll probably never know. But we must remember that whilst it's good that we are emotionally honest, it's not okay for us to think that we know better than God. It's not okay to say that God is cruel because he doesn't do things the way that we think they should be done. No one hates evil and injustice more than God himself. No one. And when we start to say things like, well, I can't believe in a God who would, who would what? Who would do something you wouldn't do or think in a way that you wouldn't think? If you have thought that, if you considered that maybe the Creator's sense of justice is more developed than yours, maybe we are the ones who are flawed. We cannot put God's actions in submission to our reasoning and our limited scope on life. We are not Him. We have no clue of the complexity of this world. Job needs to see this. We think, oh, evil's just a thing that's out there. And we forget to see the fact that the root of evil, which God talks of here in these verses as pride, is found in every single one of us. So if we want God to destroy evil, he'd have to destroy us. It's a more complicated thing than we could imagine. But God is not just saying to Job here, he's not just saying, look, evil is more complicated than you understand. He's also trying to get Job to see that he is not impotent, that he has the power and the sovereignty over even the darkest things that happen in this world. And he illustrates it, this is the second point, he illustrates it with these two monsters, Behemoth and Leviathan. Now, what is this all about? So some commentators, some of you may have this in your Bible, a little footnote saying, uh, Behemoth may be the hippopotamus, and Leviathan, a crocodile, um, could be what he's describing. But there is a problem with that view, not, not least of which would be the fact it's kind of a bit of an anticlimax to the book of Job. God, God's talked about creation. Remember the ostrich? He's talked about the ostrich. He's talked about the donkey. He's talked about all these created things back in 38 to 39. And now he comes back to Job. He says, oh, oh, by the way, remember the hippopotamus and the crocodile. And, and from what we read in verse 1 to 6 of chapter 42, this somehow seems to elicit a much stronger response from Job than the first speech did. Job's repenting here. I just can't imagine that that Job's saying, well, I was silenced by what he had to say about creation, but now that you've talked about hippos and crocodiles, uh, I repent and I'm sorry. I just can't imagine. And also, the the description of of these beasts, of these monsters, is really unlike anything you can see in creation. I mean, Leviathan's breathing fire out of his mouth. It's very different to what we see in the created order. It must be linked somehow to the accusation. 
challenging God's justice. These two monsters are linked to this. And here's what I think it is. And I've been really helped here by Christopher Ashe. I often talk about Christopher's commentary on Job and his work on Job. It's just phenomenal. Uh, and he's really helped me here. And another, um, uh, another writer, Bob File. Uh, they are two commentators on the book of Job. And they argue that Leviathan and Behemoth are these mythological creatures that are used to represent Satan and death. Now, we can certainly see this with Leviathan. If you, can, you can see this throughout the Bible. You don't need to have a knowledge of uh, ancient Babylonian culture to understand this. Um, Leviathan is used elsewhere in the Bible in tandem with Satan. Job mentioned Leviathan way back in chapter 3, verse 8, as this creature that can wipe out the days. doesn't sound like a crocodile. And then Isaiah speaks of Leviathan as this great serpent in Isaiah 27, sort of embodying evil. So does the psalmist, Psalm 74. Revelation 12, verse 9, calls Satan the great dragon, the ancient serpent, Leviathan. And the original readers of Job would have read it like this. Leviathan was a popular myth. So was Behemoth at their time, uh, which would, in their minds, conjure up uh, the idea of evil and injustice and wickedness. And the case for Behemoth is a little less clear um, because he's not really mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But apparently, there's many parallels with Behemoth in the depiction of death in ancient Canaanite culture. This devouring monster is kind of like death personified, kind of, kind of like how we would draw the Grim Reaper to um, personify death. I'm not as convinced as that, but it does make sense in the Bible to see Satan and death as going often hand in hand. And you're meant to look at these creatures, these storybook creatures. They are here to represent chaos and the evil in the world, and you're meant to feel the force of how terrifying they are. One of the things that I've been struck by in looking at the book of Job, why is Job a poem? Why, Why is the book of Job a poetic dialogue? I mean, whoever wrote this down must have spent a lot of time taking what they heard from these various individuals and putting it into this wonderful, beautiful poem. And I think part of the reason is you're meant to feel what's going on in the book of Job. You're meant to feel the frustration, the anguish, and the despair of this man, Job. And what better way to do that than through poetry? You're meant to feel the, the, the frustration and the anger of his friends. You're meant to feel the majesty of God in chapters 38 and 39. And you're meant to feel here the terrifying nature of these two untamable beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan. I don't know if you've ever been next to a creature that's so powerful it terrifies you. I have um, once uh, I was in my granddad's farm. He just got a bull. Um, I had a red tracksuit on. It was the 90s. I was from Dundee. Everyone wore them. Uh, and red, I, didn't, I don't know why, but I went into that field, and that bull went mental, and I was terrified. And I actually jumped over the fence, and this bull charged the fence. And in my granddad's fence, for a good few years after it, it was kind of C-shaped because of the ferocity of this monster. Um, and needless to say, I didn't go back in the field for a long time after that. Certainly not with a red trackie on. Um, but if you've, if you've seen that, this powerful beast, this creature... And that's what you've got here, Behemoth. These descriptions are so cool. This would be great lyrics for a heavy metal song. Verse 16, strong loins, power in his belly, huge tail like a tree of cedar. 
It's not like a hippo with his wee tiny tail. Mighty, powerful. Only God, verse 19, only God can come near this creature. Only God can slay him with the sword. The mighty monster, verse 24, Job, can you grab him? Can you pierce his nose? And then you've got Leviathan in chapters 41. Can you fish for Leviathan, Job, verse 1? Will this great sea monster come to you, Job, and speak kindly to you, verse 3? Will he say to you, oh, Job, let me be your servant? I mean, it's, it's funny. God's kind of using humor, tongue-in-cheek style humor here. He's saying this, this great untamable beast that breathes fire. Verse 5, will you put him on a leash for your girls? It's like your little girl asking for a puppy, and you come home with the Loch Ness Monster on a leash. God's trying to get, he's trying to get Job to see this, that there's this wild, untamable creature. That's what Satan, that's what evil is like. Can you control him, Job? Verse 9, at the sight of Satan, the hope of man is laid low. Notice verse 11. Notice that. God says there, Leviathan has no hold over me. I own him. Satan is, as Luther said, God's Satan. He is on God's leash. And from verse 12 all the way through to verse 34, we have the description of how terrifying this beast, this monster is. We don't have time to look in it, but you can see from the description that it would give Godzilla a run for his money. And it finishes verse 34. This is a great description of the devil. Verse 34, he sees everything that is high, and he is king over all the sons of pride. Satan, remember from the start of the book of Job, does not disappear, and then we don't see him again. Here he is being talked of at the end, the embodiment of evil, of chaos, and of death, and these two monsters. And here's what I think we're meant to get, or what Job even, and we today, are meant to get from God talking about these two beasts. Firstly, we must recognize that Satan, evil, and death are terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. We have to get this because we live in a culture that seeks to ignore death and to downplay the reality of of some force of evil out there. These creatures may be mythological, but the person that they are describing is very real. I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, wonderful book, Um, but if you have, you'll remember in the introduction to that book, uh, Lewis said there's often two mistakes that Christians make when it comes to Satan and his demons. One is to see them everywhere. So my car won't start this morning. Oh, it's the car demon attacking me. And we sort of void ourselves of any responsibility and everything's down to demons and what they do. But the second and most common mistake, I think, is to ignore them and to live as if they're not real and they don't exist. That's just as damaging. Satan is there, alive, and he is terrifying and evil is a reality. That violent crime that causes such shock and anguish, that relationship that is shattered, that illness that is incurable, there is evil at work in this universe. Before I came up to preach, I got a little message on my phone from BBC News about some terrorist attack that's happened. Evil is real, and it's terrifying, and Satan is there behind it all. And when evil happens, when people Walk away from the gospel in Jesus. Satan smiles. And it's not just Satan. 
Humanity has a responsibility to Satan may be, may be the king of pride, but we humans are, as verse 34 says, that's us. We are the sons of pride. Evil exists in us, all of us, and as such, we are in unwitting allegiance with Leviathan. This is a terrifying, complex problem that we are not distant from, but we are part of. This is the second thing I think Job needs to see from these speeches. God is more powerful than Satan and death. Only he has the power to approach Behemoth and slay him. Only he can drag Leviathan around with a hook in his nose. There is no being more powerful in all creation than God himself. Job needs to see this. God is not unjust in how he acts. Make no mistake, God hates evil more than you or I could ever possibly hate evil. Only he has the wisdom and only he has the power to do something about it. And it's as if he's saying to Job in these speeches, look, do you understand now? Do do you get the, the terrifying cosmic reality that exists behind your suffering? And do you see me as bigger than it all? Will you trust me? And then we get the third and final scene in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 42, the response of repentance. Job, after all that, that's what he sees. That's what God has been saying. He comes and he repents. Now I know, he says, things that I hadn't known before. Such wonderful knowledge, verse 3. And this knowledge causes him to repent. He said, Job, this good man, this godly man, one of the best men, we could say, that existed. He said some things about God that were wrong in his suffering. And God broke into his life and revealed to him who he was. And Job repented. This is a man who's lost his children. This is a man who's lost his health, his reputation, and all his wealth and money. And he's all alone on a rubbish heap in the deepest recesses of depression. And he needed comfort. He needed support. He didn't get any of that from his friends. But he also needed something essential. He needed knowledge. He needed to know this God who was behind his suffering. Suffering had blinded Job to the truth, and it often does us. Don't we think, oh, because I've gone through hard times, God must not care about me. God must not love me. No matter how many times we hear Jesus telling us of the necessity of suffering for him, we can say things in our pain that are not true of God, things that we need to repent of. Suffering does not give us a license to sin. And I know some of us may be struggling with so much that God has caused us to go through, but we must be honest. We must be honest with how we feel, but we must not also lose sight of what we know about God. We need this wonderful knowledge, and we today here in this church have a much greater and infinitely more wonderful knowledge than Job got here when God came and spoke to him face to face. Because we have not just heard of what God has done to death and Satan. We have seen it. And guess what? The fall of Leviathan, the fall of Behemoth, it came through suffering. The suffering of another innocent servant of God. This is the second and last point. We'll bring this into land. With this point, God has shown how he's defeated 
Satan and death. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, which is a written account of Jesus' life, Sam was talking about a gospel project, Jesus, the Son of God. We see Jesus, we see him approach a man tormented by evil. He was possessed with over a thousand demons who called themselves legion. They had marred his image because Satan loves to wreck the image of God and destroy what God has declared to be good. And this man was living amongst the dead. And when Jesus approached him, these demons were terrified. And those who were there, they watched as they saw the chaos of evil as Jesus drove these demons out of this man into a herd of 2,000 pigs. And the pigs were flung off the edge of a cliff because evil was this chaotic thing that they witnessed. But they also saw the Lord over evil. And that terrified them more, the one who could take these demons and drive them out. Demons trembled before the sight of this humble Galilean peasant. Why? Because they knew who he was. He is not a mere man. This is God himself in the flesh. And they knew that he had come to destroy them. But it wasn't until Jesus was suffering. Like we were learning about this morning. Please listen to that sermon online from this morning. And it will help you with Job. It was wonderful. It was through his suffering, it was through his death on the cross that death and Satan were defeated. Why did he, why did Jesus die? Why did he suffer? We saw this this morning. Jesus suffered. Jesus died, the perfect innocent, so that he could destroy the evil in our lives without destroying us. That sinful pride that exists in all of us. All our wrongdoing that represents our unwitting allegiance to Satan. God is just and every sin demands justice. But the big conundrum that God faces all throughout the entire Bible is how can he punish the sin in our lives without having to punish us? Because he doesn't want to punish us because he loves us. Despite how we behave towards him. And the answer to that conundrum was the cross of Jesus Christ, where he steps in our place. He takes the punishment for our wickedness. He takes the punishment for our pride so that we can be free from it, so that Satan's hold on us would be released. And now Satan has no hold on those who follow Christ. Leviathan, Behemoth, their downfall was marked by three simple words, it is finished. That's what Jesus cried on the cross. Sin has been dealt with, and death has been dealt with. Jesus used Satan's weapon against him, death that was once our curse. Christ has made it our victory. That's what the cross accomplished. God hates evil more than us, and in his wisdom, he can wield evil Like the evil that was present at the cross as the Son of God was crucified, he can wield that for good. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death was subject to lifelong slavery. Satan is fallen. And if you're a Christian, he has nothing on you. Nothing. But he's still active, although he's a fallen enemy. 
And he will be until Jesus returns. We still see evil. It still confuses us. Why does God let certain things happen? We don't know. Why did he he let me go through what I went through? We don't know. But as we gaze at the cross of Jesus, there is one thing that we do know, our wonderful knowledge. It cannot be that God is cruel to us. It cannot be that he is unloving. It cannot be that he is unjust because he gave up the most precious thing that he had in the entire universe to save us, his son, gave it up so that Satan's hold would no longer be on us and so that the curse of death would be used to liberate us to life everlasting with him. And because that is true, we can say with absolute certainty, oh, how Job wished to know what we know today, that this powerful God This powerful God who knows how to control the supernatural forces of evil to serve his purpose of good can and will use the darkness that invades our life for his unshakable plans of the eternal good we can have in Christ our Savior. Let me say that again. This powerful God who knows how to control the supernatural forces of evil to serve his purposes for good can and will use the darkness that invades our life for his unshakable plans of the eternal good that we can have in Jesus Christ. We know this. Job longed to know it. The Old Testament prophets searched and longed for this. And Peter reminds us, even the angels long to know this wonderful knowledge. So hold on to it and grow in it. For that wonderful knowledge will anchor your soul in times of suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such great truth, such wonderful knowledge. Father, words just don't seem to do justice to, to what you have done, to what you have accomplished. How in your wisdom... You defeated Satan using his own weapon. You overthrew him with the death of your son. How in your wisdom you wielded evil for the ultimate good of us. Father, none of us would have thought of that. And yet we often dare to question your justice and your goodness. As if we know how the world should be run. As if we understand the complexities of of evil and pride. Father, have mercy for when we've done that. And Father, I pray for those here who are suffering and who are just confused as to why you would let them go through that. I pray, Father, that the reality of the cross would be a comfort. That though we may never know why, we do know what it is not. We do know that you're not unjust, that you're not unkind, that you're not cruel, that we do know that it's not that you don't care about us because we have Jesus. And so, Father, please teach us with the knowledge that we have. Help us to grow in it, to learn from it. Help us to marvel at what we know from the cross, that we have such wonderful knowledge. And, Father, help us to repent where we need to repent. In Jesus' name. Amen.